There are two things that most Christians can agree upon and that we have experienced to be true. Number one is that we want to stop sinning. We would really like to stop sinning. Number two, it's very hard to stop sinning. <laughs> and that's the struggle that we all face. I would like to be holy. I can't be holy. I'd like to stop sinning. I'm having a very hard time stopping sinning. And in Romans chapter 7, you read this chapter and every time, just reading it out loud, everybody goes, yes, amen. That is me. That is my life. That is exactly how I feel. To fight against sin is, a, is an exhausting thing. And we can start to even despair and wonder if it's even possible to overcome sin. We read all the wonderful things Paul says in Romans 6, right? That we are no longer debtors to the flesh, that you are no longer in sin if you are in Christ Jesus. And then we try to live out our lives and we think, well, maybe Paul was exaggerating, you know, things like that. And there are even those that will say, just stop worrying about it. You're never going to overcome your sin. Just learn to live with it. But that's not good, as we've already seen and as we're going to continue to see. What you get in this chapter, although it is very re relatable for all of us to read it, you also get a theological explanation of what has taken place spiritually that explains why we struggle the way we do. And it encourages us because it shows us this is what's going on. And it's going to say some things that are so encouraging that it almost feels bad to say what the Bible says because it feels like you're trying to give yourself a cop out. But it not only encourages us, it also exhorts us. It calls you to a high standard. Paul is going to say, this is what it's like and it's difficult and it's hard. The Lord has still justified you, but here's the struggle. That said, don't stop fighting. It's a struggle that you are expected to win. And I think it's important for us to hear this, that your constant back and forth and being beaten down by sin is not the life that God has intended for you as a Christian. God didn't save you so that you spend your whole life sinning, 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 sinning. Okay, good. Now I'm dead and I can finally go to heaven. The Lord expects you and has empowered you to overcome the sin that is in your life, to shed it off like a skin. But in the end, what we're going to see that it is, it is not until the coming resurrection that we're going to finally be rid of all this stuff. And that's a hope that, that carries us through this struggle, but it's, it's also the reminder that this is a struggle that can be overcome in Christ Jesus. This is a very complicated passage. It's hard to understand on, on all of its levels, but I'm excited to get into it because I think this can be at the same time a great encouragement and a great exhortation for us. So let's read verses 14 and 15 to begin. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. Any amens on that? For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. That, that right there, I do not understand my own actions. Well, verse 14 is, is Paul's pivot point here. And it's, and it's very hard, as I've said several times, to cleanly break some of these chapters and these sections. But he says, we know that the law is spiritual. That kind of sums up everything he said in chapter 7 so far. As well as, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. That is also what he said before, but that second half is going to become his point of emphasis for the rest of this chapter. So let's, let's summarize where we are so far, because it's important to know this, to, to get the context. 
We are in the section of Romans on sanctification. There's a great rhyming outline that somebody came up with long ago, and I'm very thankful for it. The beginning, we looked at condemnation. That's chapter 1 through chapter 3, half of chapter 3, which is the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. If you sin, you're going to hell, and we all sin. That's the first part. The second part is called justification, that the Lord has declared you righteous in Christ Jesus. He's not reckoned your sins against you. Your names are written in the Lamb's book of life by the blood of Jesus. Now, this next part is what's called sanctification, which is you have been saved. You've been, you've been declared righteous, but now you've got a whole life to live. And that life is to be characterized by greater and greater obedience and holiness and liberation from sin. The first thing Paul told us in that section is that God's grace abounds because of our sin, which was maximized by the law of Moses. That was the last thing he said in chapter 5, that the law only increased our sin, but when our sin increased, so did grace. And that's a radical thought. So he goes on to explain. This, what he said in chapter 6 was that this doesn't mean you're allowed to sin, Right? If, well, I've been saved by grace, therefore it doesn't matter what I do, right? Well, wrong. You are dead to sin in Christ Jesus. And if you keep walking in sin, that proves that you're still a slave to sin and you were never saved in the first place. Number three, when he gets into chapter seven, he's saying, because you're in Christ, you're no longer under the law of Moses. And he gives this long explanation that the law's purpose was to maximize sin and drive us to Jesus Christ. Number four, what we saw last time is this does not make the law evil as if the law was somehow the, the problem here. He says the problem is you. The problem is that you can't keep God's law or any law for that matter, as he said in chapter two. And that's where we've gone so far. Grace abounds because sin abounds. Doesn't mean you're allowed to sin. You're no longer under the law, but the law is not evil. And so in verse 14, it kind of gives us a little summary statement. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh. And that little phrase right there is what's going to be this passage today. The law is not evil. So if you want to summarize this section, you could say, I am the problem. We are the problem. You are the problem. Why can't I live righteously? Because of you. You know, there's a lot of things that we try to do to make sure that everything goes smoothly. But a lot of times it, it still comes down to you having to execute in the moment, right? You've ever had a, you ever played football, your coach can drop the most perfect play and the most wonderful strategy. And then you get out there and you miss the tackle and he loses his mind because it was all so perfect. And then you messed up. There's still people that have to live this out. And it's a similar thing with us in Christ that we are the problem. And he makes this contrast between the spiritual law and the fleshly man. And these two distinctions are, are, are very much made throughout the letters of Paul, the spirit and the flesh. And the Spirit is a good thing, and sometimes he refers to the Holy Spirit or the Christian life lived by the Holy Spirit. And the flesh, meaning the body, is the problem. And verse 15 is such a relatable verse. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. So relatable. It's personal. Paul is using the, the word I here. And he's explaining really what he's just said, that I am carnal, I am of the flesh, I'm sold under sin. Now, as I've already said, this is one of the most notoriously difficult passages to interpret in the book of Romans. You read it the first time and you think you've got it. 
And then you have a few phrases that if they're pointed out, you go, wait a minute, how, how does that quite fit into this? And then you get to chapter 8, and it gets even more complicated. And, and it's important to know, as Peter said, some of the things that Paul said are hard to understand. The gist is pretty easy to get usually, but when you try to understand the details, it, it's hard. And this makes sense. Theology, the truth about God, is complicated. But you can see this. He transitions to the first person present tense. At the beginning of chapter 7, he was in first person past tense. All the things that were true. And that's easy to grasp. Okay, yeah, we were all under sin. We were all struggling with the law. But now all of a sudden, he's talking about I now in the present tense. Which, of course, raises the question. These long descriptions that Paul's going to give about the struggle with sin, is that describing the Christian life now? Or is that describing how it used to be? Is this describing how it ought to be? Or this is how God always intended? Is it less than what God intended? And because it's so relatable, it's very easy for us just to assume that we've got this one. Oh yeah, that sounds like me. Well, hold on. Just because it sounds like you doesn't mean that it's, it's good. It could sound like you and be a very bad thing, could it not? So especially when you compare the other writings of Paul, it, it can be tough to know exactly how to interpret this. But let's take a look at, at, at this. And I, I think I've... I think I've been able to come to a place where at least I understand it better than I usually have. There are five basic interpretations of this passage if you're taking notes. Number one is that Paul in Romans chapter 7 is describing the life of an unsaved person. That this struggle with sin, I do not do what I want to do, but I do what I don't want to do. That's describing somebody who's not saved. That's what it means to not be a believer. And that makes a little bit of sense because you get to the end of the chapter, who will deliver me from this body of death? Christ Jesus, our Lord. And folks will say, well, that's building up to the moment of salvation. And then that's not your life anymore. Well, that becomes hard for us because you go, okay, well, I'm saved. And that still sounds like me. So what do we say there? Number two is, is very similar, but it's more specific that this is not just describing an unsaved person. This is describing an unsaved Jewish person in a struggle with the law of Moses. That this is very specifically what the law was intended to do. And I think there is some truth to that also. That this is what the law was intended to do. Is to provoke these feelings of helplessness to drive you to verse 24 that says, Who will deliver me and look to Jesus? But again, Paul is writing not just to Jews. Perhaps not even mostly to Jews. So is this passage just kind of something we stand back and look at? I don't, I don't really think so. Number three is that Paul is describing the normal expected life of a born-again Christian. This is the saved interpretation. And I'd say this is probably the most common one that you hear. That this is what the Christian life is. We were saved in chapter 5. We're still talking about saved people. And in chapter 7, you know, we struggle with sin. And, and don't you struggle just like that? So don't let your struggle be an indication that you're not saved. And so on and so forth. But the difficulty with that is you get into chapter 8. And he tells us that you are not in the flesh. And he said, well, well, Paul said in chapter 7 that I am of the flesh. But in chapter 8, he says he's not. So very, very, what is the, the distinction here? Number four, this is slightly nuanced. I think this is the closest one we've had so far. Is that this is describing a backslidden Christian. This is somebody who is saved, but is not walking like they ought to be. And that somebody who's struggling with sin like this is in need of a sound rebuke and really needs to come forward and repent. Because this is not what Christ intended for you. I'm going to take what I'm going to call the fifth view here because I think there's really, I think trying to nail it down quite like that misses the point. I'm going to call this a description of the dissonant Christian. The dissonant Christian. You know what dissonance is? When you play two 
pleasant sounding notes on the piano together, it's called harmony. When you get just one key off and you, and you push it, it, it sounds awful. That's dissonance. It doesn't go together very well. And this is what I'm going to say. That what Paul is describing in chapter 7 is something that is very real, but it is not the ideal. That kind of rhymes, so maybe it'll help you remind us. That this is real. Paul is not necessarily throwing a bunch of condemnation on you. In fact, in chapter 8, he's going to say there's no condemnation. But he is also going to be holding this up and saying, but this is not somewhere you want to live. This is something we really encounter. It's the real struggle, but it is a struggle that you are expected in Christ to win and to overcome. And in fact, I think when we connect this with some other doctrines and other passages that we, we are familiar with, that, that helps us understand this much better. I think Paul is very clearly describing what we call life in the flesh, which is something that is true of all humanity, including Christians. But it is something that only the Christian can overcome in Christ Jesus. And, and it's much easier to interpret this passage if you separate it from Romans 8. But you can't do that. Because Romans 8 is going to say a lot of things that, that throw a lot of cold water on some interpretations that we have. And I think in order to stay consistent to the other things that Paul says, you, you've got to make sure you get the whole Bible in here. I think his main point of chapter 7 is to describe how it feels to try to keep God's law in the flesh. And every Christian has experienced that, can experience that, but as we're going to see in Romans 8 and in other places, it is a fight that you are expected to continue fighting until you overcome because God has given you the victory in Christ Jesus. So while we never want this passage to be true of us, it probably is and probably has been. And if there is a specific area of your life that as you read through Romans 7, it starts to sound familiar, that's the area that requires attention in your life. That's the place that God wants to focus his attention and bring the Holy Spirit's power to bear to give you victory. These are not the kind of things that we should ignore and hope will just go away. That's not what sin does, is it? So I hope this will become more clear as we go through it. But let's look at verse 16 and, and go on from here. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. There's another one of those really relatable sentences, huh? I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Different word there, prasso. It means to practice or repeatedly do something. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So he said in verse 15 that I, I do the things that I hate. And he expands on that idea. And these verses that every one of us reads and goes, mm-hmm, yeah, that is me. The desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out just about describes my whole life. Now, what's the point he's making? Paul says, I do things that I hate. Isn't that fascinating that we do that as people? We can say, I believe this and I think this is wrong and it should never be done. And then we do it. So well, that makes you a hypocrite. Well, yeah, it does. But it also makes you very human, doesn't it? We all do that. And this is how he's proving, he's still working with this idea of the law, that the law itself is not evil, that it's good. He says, because I agree, thou shalt not kill is a good thing. In fact, most murderers probably agree that thou shalt not kill is a good way to live your life. 
or thou shalt not lie, or honor your father and mother, or thou shalt not covet. Those are all good things. So when I covet, I hate that I did that. And by hating the thing that I did, I'm agreeing that that commandment was a good commandment. So that, that's how that fits into context here. And this is also, by the way, and I really don't have time to get into it, but this is a remarkable apologetic for the truth of Scripture and for the existence of God. That even people that don't believe in God have these strong moral consciences that afflict them when they do the wrong thing. And you ask the question, where does that come from? Why should you care? If we're, if we're just chemicals and bones and that's all we are, why should you care whatever you do? And what people will say things like, there's, there's no God, there is no rule, there is no law. People can live however they want, you know, libertarian, live your life. And then somebody starts doing it and we freak out and we lock them up forever. How could you do that? Well, he said that there's no, if there's no God, if there's no reason to do this, then why shouldn't he? Well, it's just wrong. Well, where does that, that come from? It's what C.S. Lewis called the ought, that you ought not to do that or you ought to do that. Even little kids have that. That's not fair even though the kid will then themselves go on and do what is not fair as long as it benefits them. So again, I can't spend a lot of time on that, but it is an important point to, to think about. He says, nothing good dwells in his flesh because I've got the moral desire, but I don't have the power to do it. Lots of us have the desire to be Olympians, but most of us do not have the ability to carry it out, you might say. Amen. Now this separation is key. He's separating his desires and his flesh, his heart and his flesh, the inner man and the outer man. And that is the key to understanding this passage. So we've got to know what this term means. And I've gone through this before, so hopefully it's familiar to you. That word for flesh in the Greek is sarx. And it, it just refers to the body, the, the meat of your body. In fact, the Latin word for this is carne. If any of you speak Spanish or have been to a Mexican restaurant, you know that carne means meat. So it's just your body as it exists. The, the stuff that composes the body, that's flesh. And in one very important sense, this is a neutral term. When the Bible talks about being in the flesh in some contexts, it's not saying that it's bad to be in the flesh. It's just different than being an angel, for example. Right? We're walking in the flesh, the Bible says. Jesus Christ himself, John 1.14, the word became flesh. doesn't mean Jesus became evil means that Jesus took on a body, right? And that's important to know because there's always some cult or other that like has this weird hatred of the body and that everything that you want is wrong and all your desires need to be suppressed and put away. And this has led to the weird self-flagellation that people would do and whipping and beating themselves and people that will even literally crucify themselves for a short time in order, to, in order to overcome their sins or, you know, food and drink are bad or that sexuality is bad. And that, that's not good because Jesus himself took on a body. And when God created Adam and Eve in the body, he said it was good. So that's, that's good to know. But here's the problem. Your body has been corrupted by sin. It's corrupt. And because it's corrupted by sin, your good desires are blown way out of proportion. Your desires to do good things, the things your body tells you, right? It gets too late, your body sends you a message, time to go to bed. Right? You get hungry, your body tells you it's time to eat. All of these things that, that are in you have been corrupted by sin and are taken way out of proportion. And they lead to things like excess. Yeah, you know, your body also will send you a signal to stop eating when you're not hungry anymore. 
But most of us know that we can just continue to eat and eat and eat well beyond what is right or normal. And this is not good for your body. Now you, you might think to yourself, I'm so out of shape and I'm so unhealthy. Why am I still hungry? Because your body is, is a fleshly thing and it's gluttonous is the word. It can lead to perversion where you start wanting things that are not only not good for you, but that you shouldn't want. We looked at this in Romans chapter 1, for example. Paul gave the example of homosexuality. Well, this is just a desire I have. But your desires are not always a good gauge of what's right because your desires are corrupted by sin. It doesn't even have to be that. Well, I really, I'm in love with that woman. No, you're not. You have an inordinate, sinful desire for that woman. And you ought to be cultivating desire for your wife, the one that you committed your whole life to. All manner of sin. I like to use the example that there's always those old cartoons where like Bugs Bunny or Goofy like backs into the, the meter on like a factory somewhere and all of a sudden the factory just kind of goes way too fast and then they try to pull the lever off and it breaks off and everything's just kind of going nuts and it all blows up. That's kind of what your flesh is. You've gone from the normal, healthy, dry, like sexuality is a good thing, hunger is a good thing, sleep is a good thing, but you go all the way to the other side and you can't stop it. It's going way too fast. Now, when you are saved, your soul is regenerated by the Holy Spirit. You're given new desires. You're given new ability to walk in righteousness. But here's the thing. Your flesh remains sinful. Now, we might say, wait a minute. God saved me. Why did he save the soul but not the body? Well, what had to happen to you spiritually in order to be saved? You had to die. You had to die with Christ Jesus. In order for your body to be redeemed from sin, likewise, it also is going to have to die. But the Lord has a life for you to live. So where we are left is this spiritual dissonance that I'm talking about, where the, the spirit is alive because of Christ, but your body is dead because of sin. Paul's going to talk about this in, in Romans chapter 8 a little bit further. And that that is the life. That, that same struggle with your body that you experienced as an unbeliever is still present because you're still in that same body. We've talked about habits before that even now we're discovering that habits are neurological it's not even just i don't want to do that anymore i'm having a hard time you can lay down railroad track in your brain that this is where you're going to go and that still needs to be overcome when you get saved you've been given holy desires by the spirit but the flesh gets in the way this is that now and not yet that we are saved we've been justified but we have not yet been consummated and glorified which is what we're looking forward to someday it's why peter will say things like this first peter chapter 2 verse 11 it says beloved i urge you as sojourners and exiles abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul the flesh and the soul are at war with one another because the soul has been regenerated by the spirit, but the body is still corrupt because of sin. I think that is the best way to read this passage. Now, this struggle that Paul is talking about is a struggle with the flesh. I think that's an established doctrine, but it's not always put into this, this chapter. And uh, that's why I think trying to wonder, is this saved? Is this unsaved? It's really beside the point. Paul is describing what it's like to struggle with the flesh, which unbelievers certainly do. But Christians also do because they're still in the body. The difference is that as a believer, you can overcome the flesh. And in fact, you're expected to overcome the flesh. His big point here is that the law is not the problem I am because look at me. <laughs> I can't even do the stuff I want to do. But he's going beyond that. that. Because we are still in sinful flesh, all the spiritual 
desires that we have are so difficult to carry out. This is why you can come to church, hear the message, get all revved up, you're fired up and ready to go, and yet you go right home and you sin all over again. You don't even make it out of the parking lot and you're at each other's throats again. Even though you just sat there and prayed together, I don't ever want to do this again. He said, I'm going to go home and I'm, I'm never going to, th this relationship has got to end. He is nothing but trouble. I'm going to stop. And then you get in the car and of course he's already calling you and you answer the phone and there you go. And you get home and you go, what is wrong with me? Why did I, I don't even want, you ever do this when you sin? I don't even like this. I don't feel good. I don't, I'm not enjoying this anymore. Oh yeah, when I was, when I was a teenager, oh, it was really fun and kind of edgy to go out and get drunk and, and party. But now I'm 40, I'm 50, and it's not fun anymore. But why can't I stop? That's the struggle with the flesh. Even though you don't like it, so to speak. Sin is pleasurable for a season, the Bible says. But then when you see the havoc it wreaks in your life, you go, well, I'm not doing that again. But then you realize, I am having a hard time stopping. It's a spiritually dissonant life. Your heart is alive, but your body's fighting you. You ever feel like your body's actually fighting you? It's like, I, I feel like I can't stop. Like the body's kind of marching on its own here. Well, that's very much theologically what's going on here. It's that your body is, is it's, it's like a petulant kid. You tell it no, and it throws a little tantrum. It is for this reason that so many temptations begin with the body. And we try to feed our minds and we try to feed our spirits, and that's all good. But listen, if you don't learn to get your body under control, you're going to have some trouble. That's why the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. And there, there are, <laughs> most of the spiritual disciplines that we go through, things like fasting and things like prayer, like they're, they're very physical in a lot of ways. Now, this just feels so, so fleshly. Well, in a way it is in that it is bodily because your body is, in, is the problem. And you've got to learn to subject your body to the Spirit of God. And if you want to overcome sin, my brothers and sisters, you cannot give yourself free reign in other unrelated areas of your flesh. It won't work. If you are a, let's use the example of laziness. If you sleep as much as you can whenever you want, if you don't like to get up and do the work that's got to be done, if you're constantly pushing stuff off, but you're over here trying to overcome some kind of addiction, it's not going to work because you're teaching your body that it gets what it wants. If I want to sleep, I sleep. If I want to, don't want to go to work, I call out of work. And then you come over here and say, I'm going to stop committing adultery. No, you're not because your body has learned it can do whatever it wants. The same thing with gluttony. Oh, food doesn't matter. Oh, yes, it does. If you're always giving your body what it wants and not only giving it what it wants, you're giving it the, the most heightened peak version of what it wants. And you're giving it over and over and over and you're stuffing your body to the point where you can't even hold it and digest it all anymore. Then why do you think you're going to be able to overcome your temper when it flares up? Oh, I'll be able to control myself then. No, you're not. You can't even control yourself driving home from work. And there's four drive throughs along the way and you're going to hit one of them. It's the body. So well, wait a minute. Hold on. This is, this is spiritual stuff and this is physical. Yeah, but listen, while the, body, the Bible will describe us as body and soul for the purposes of discussion, you are one thing. You are one person. You, you are all tied together and you cannot neglect one half of yourself in order to feed the other half. Have you ever felt that sin is an outside intruder? Have you ever felt trapped in your body? That's what it means to struggle with the flesh. And you know, Paul acknowledges that and we've been kind of hitting some of the the exhortation here, but let's get to the encouragement. In verse 17 and 20, twice, 
He says, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin who dwells in me. And then verse 20 says, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Paul says, I still sin, but that's not me. And you go, ah, you can't say that. <laughs> you can't say that, Paul. That's not fair. Paul did not see himself as having a sinful heart. I've been regenerated. I've been sanctified and glorified by the Spirit of God. I'm still stuck in this body, so sometimes the body gets its way, but that, that's just sin. It's going to be dealt with someday. Now, if, if you were to hear somebody say that to you, you might say something like, you need to start taking more responsibility for your actions, young lady. You, you, you need to not cop out. You've got to focus and, and get it right. And yeah, okay, fair enough. But Paul says, I, I'm, I'm a captive. I'm a prisoner in this body until the Lord liberates me from this body. And you know what this teaches us? You are not your sin. It's so easy to define yourself by the things you struggle with, even if you don't want to initially. When something tragic happens to you, and that leads you to spiral out of control, and you're letting that thing dictate and drive your behavior, even if it happened decades ago, Somebody hurt you. Somebody lied to you. Somebody stole from you. And now you've got all these, these issues. You're bitter and you're angry. And you're like, this is what happened to me. And this is why I am that way. The Lord goes, I, I don't see you that way. That stuff is all flesh. Your spirit is alive in Christ Jesus. Folks do this, again, same example as before, but with their sexuality. It's not just, th this is how I feel sexually. And these are the, the desires that I have. This is who I am. Haven't we seen this? I am gay. I am a lesbian. And for you to challenge that is to challenge me. And as Christians, we don't quite get that. We're like, no, I love you, but what you're doing is wrong. But this person has defined themselves by this action, by these desires. And so this is why it's very hard to have that conversation because when somebody is so wrapped up in an identity that is sinful, when you try to attack the sin as we should, they feel like you're attacking them. And that's why you've got to be so patient and kind and so loving with these people because they're deceived. Don't, don't get angry. Be full of love like Jesus was. We can even be defined by, by our ambition and our accomplishments. You know, what, you know what Jeremiah said to Baruch, who was his scribe? In Jeremiah 45, 5, he said, Do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. What was going on? Well, Baruch said, hey, man, Jeremiah is the prophet, and he's writing the Bible, and I get to be the one that writes it all down when he preaches. And I'm, gonna be, I'm right there. And I'm kind of like Elijah and Elisha. So someday I'm going to be the guy, and then Jeremiah, who's been prophesying to Israel all this time, he says, hey, Baruch, I have a word from the Lord for you. Don't seek great things for yourself. This city is going to be destroyed. Same thing for you. Don't seek your, your, your own glory. Don't seek great things for yourself. This city, this whole world is going to be destroyed someday. This is who I am. Well, then you need to find a new way to define yourself. These things do not define you for good or for ill. And there are some people that get so addicted to their old way of life that they can't, they're afraid to let it go. It's like, don't you want to be free from that bitterness? Yes. Okay, then you've got to forgive your father. I can't. But if you do, it'll set you free from all that burden all you're carrying. But they don't know what life is like outside of that. And that's why, again, we've got to be so full of love and patience with these people. It is no longer I who sin, but it's sin that dwells in me. 
That also is a verse you need to be able to claim over your life when you feel like you're such a failure and God will never be able to love you and I've sinned again and here we go and I'm probably going to hell. You know, that was sin that dwells in me, not me. That's a hard truth to learn. And it's a hard thing to learn. It almost feels irresponsible. But that's how God sees us, isn't it? The Lord goes, I know you're stuck in the flesh. So in the Psalms, it says, the Lord knows your frame. He knows your dust. Because I made you out of the mud. I get it. 1 John 1, verses 8 and 9 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So even the Apostle John is like, if you think you're somehow free and I've never ever have sinned, I'm never going to sin again, it's all over. He goes, you're deceiving yourself. Then you, you've got some deep-rooted stuff that you're not willing to admit is what, what's going on. But then in verse 9 he says, but if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He'll go on to say, I'm writing this so that you don't sin, right? And I'm preaching this, don't sin. <laughs> but if you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father. Which, this is why Romans 7 does apply to us as believers. Because none of us are ever going to be rid of the sinful attacks of the flesh until we see the Lord in glory. But we have forgiveness in Jesus. And those things no longer define us as people. Sin is an intrusion. Sin's always been an intrusion. It came into the Lord's world and, and it's ruined everything. It's ruined you. And that's how the Lord has reckoned you. He's reckoned you righteous, even though he knows you're still trapped in that sinful body. You're going to struggle in the flesh, but you, never gotta, you can never forget. Salvation is by grace, not by works. And that where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. Amen. And that, that's a perspective that is very difficult to have if you are a Christian with a strong conscience. You want to do the right thing and you sin. It, how, it almost feels wrong to then say, well, the Lord's grace is abounding to me. Sometimes you're like, Lord, I wish your grace would abound just a little bit less because I don't want to sin anymore. And I, that's a good attitude to have. But th this understanding of yourself is so key. If you don't have this, then your struggles with sin are going to feel like life and death. Like, if I don't get this right, I'm going to hell. Instead of, I'm not going to hell, so I'm going to stop living like it. I've got the power of Jesus Christ in me. So the law is good. I am not. The struggle with flesh is real but it is not determinative for your life. And that's what we're going to get into in these next couple of verses. Verse 21. So I find it to be a law, little, little play on words there for Paul. We're talking about the law. He goes, you want a law? Here's a law. That when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members, that is the, the members of your body, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So we've just established the theology here. We're saved by faith, but we struggle with the flesh. Paul says that even those who delight in the law of God face captivity to the law of sin. There's, there's fatigue in these verses, isn't there? You can hear Paul just, he's tired. He's like, every time I want to do the right thing, evil is right there. Every time I say, all right, from now on, we're not sinning anymore. There's sin right there, ready to come at you. It almost, and it is in a lot of ways, it feels malignant and personal. That when you say, Lord, I, I'm going to stop being critical. I'm going to stop being this person that's always judging other people. I'm going to start loving everybody. It's almost like Satan takes offense at that. And he says, oh yeah? And he, he pushes you to the place where you always fall and you always stumble. 
and you start criticizing, you start being critical again, you go, Lord, I sinned. And there's Satan going, see, you're, you're nothing. This is, this is why I can't stand you people and why Jesus never should have died for you because you're hopeless. Just look at you. There's fatigue here. And you can even start to have this attitude towards God if you're not careful. Say, Lord, I've been trying for decades to overcome this and I can't. I'm tired. I don't want to fight anymore. I don't want to keep going. I don't want to abide. I want to be done. And this, is, this will drive people away from the Lord, which is the most horrible thing because you're still going to have all those struggles except now you won't have recourse to the Lord to help you in those moments. What I need to remind you of today is that while this struggle with the flesh is real, it is not the ideal. It's real. But it's not the ideal. You don't need to feel bad about struggling with your flesh. But you ought to remember that the Lord intends you to win that struggle with your flesh. We fight the temptations that we have, but you are encouraged and expected to overcome by God's Holy Spirit. This is where you can fall short, and this is where the, we got to make sure we get this passage right. If you say, well, yeah, I struggle with the flesh. It's just the way it is. Okay, are you winning? Well, we're in a battle. Are you winning the battle? And if not, why not? Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 17 says, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Walk in the Spirit. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For they are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. The Holy Spirit has activated your spirit and is fighting against that sinful flesh. And it's a tug of war in your heart, and you know what that feels like. So we never want to minimize that struggle. The Bible acknowledges it and says it's real, but it also assures you of victory over your sin. And this is the part we've got to catch. We've got to remember what we read in Romans 6, and we've got to also anticipate what's coming in chapter 8. The spiritual dissonance, the flesh, and the spirit. We are justified in a moment. We will be glorified in a moment but sanctification is an ongoing process. It's hard to do that. To have to live your whole life, moving from one, one degree of sanctification to the other, but like that's difficult to do. It's easy to say. And it'll preach real. Glory to glory preaches really well. But glory is a moment of victory. And victories only come after a long fight, don't they? So we can't just look at the peaks. We've got to remember those valleys. It's possible to walk in the flesh as a Christian. There will be some that will tell you, no, you have no more sinful nature. You have no more. So if you're still sinning, then that means you're not saved. Oh, that's so unfair. It's so unfair to say. Why, why would the Bible tell us over and over again to fight against the flesh? I read it from 1 Peter. We read it in Galatians. We're talking about it here in Romans. He says, you're still in the flesh, so fight it. Don't just let it happen to you. Get up and throw a punch. So no, I'm not going to do this anymore. And it doesn't matter how many times you get knocked down, you get up and you keep going. David was the man after God's own heart because he never sinned? Oh, certainly not. David sinned worse than anybody in this room has ever sinned. But what did David do? Whenever he sinned, he got on his face, he repented, and he got up and kept trying. And that's why the Lord goes, I love that guy. I, I don't need somebody to be perfect. I need somebody who's going to keep coming back. That dogged determination. If you walk in the flesh and you let the battle just beat you down too long, you'll start to lose heart. It's far too easy to accept the struggle. 
Well, that's just my vice. That's just the thing I've got to deal with. We've all got our demons. We've all got our struggles. Well, of course we do. But why are you going to let them boss you around? Just move on. God has given you the tools to overcome your flesh. Do you know that? Most importantly, you have the personal presence of the Spirit of God there to help you. You know, we, we watch the, the movies about the, the Exodus, right? Commandments or the Prince of Egypt. And we watch the Lord raining fire from heaven and parting the waters and the pillar of cloud. And oh, man, that's our God. He's so awesome. He can overcome anything. That power lives in you. He is dwelling in you. And he's ready to help you fight and be liberated, not from slavery now, but from slavery to sin. So why do we go, well, I guess I'm just going to deal with this forever. The Lord goes, who says? I didn't say that. You said that. That's the lie of the enemy. He goes, just stop struggling against sin. Stop fighting your sin and just try to ignore it as best you can. So I don't think so. That, that's, what, that's what happens in a war when one side is losing and they realize they're about to get backed off. They want to try and negotiate. Let's have a peace summit. And, you know, I think we've all done some things we regret. Now, let's just try and see where we're going to settle this. Like, uh, no way. Right? We're, we're going to fight this thing to the end. We're going to win. Are you ever going to be sinless? Well, you're always going to have the drive to sin inside you because you're in the flesh. But there is no functional limit on holiness for Christians. Just walk in the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Don't come in and take verses like that and go, now we all know that we're all going to sin and we're all going to struggle. Yeah, but I hope I'm sinning less next year than I was this year. Amen. I hope in 10 years, you can do this now. Look back 10 years ago. Aren't you glad you're over some of that stuff you were fighting with? Oh, praise the Lord. That's, I prayed for that every day for years, and now I'm done with it. Well, look at the stuff you've got now and say, you're next, temper. You're next, lust. You're next, bitterness. I already got over the laziness. I already got over my, my fear of, of coming to the Jesus and worshiping. So you know what? You're all going down. That's the struggle. That's the victory that we have. you got to recognize that. We're going to give some practical ways here on how you can fight and how you can overcome. And I've taught other messages on that and we'll continue to do so. But you've got to recognize this. And some of y'all, you, you, you need to start the battle up again. You've just given up. You say, you know what? Fine. You, you, we're going to have an armistice. We're going to let the battle line stay where they are. And we're not going to progress. No, no, no. It's up and over the wall. You've got to get going all right, you know what? This thing that has lied dormant in my heart for a long time, it's time to, to go to war again. And you might think to yourself, I can't. If I do that and I fail again, I don't think I could handle it. Well, let the Lord fight for you. Let the Lord teach you that it is no longer you that does it, but the sin that dwells in you. I'm so rotten. No, you're not so rotten. That sin is so rotten. You've got to have that attitude when Satan comes after you. And your, your flesh rises up. That attitude that, that David had towards Saul. I'm not touching the Lord's anointed. How dare you touch the Lord's anointed? Saul was dying on the battlefield. And one of the armor bearers killed him. Because Saul said, please kill me so the Philistines don't get me. And David had that guy executed. How dare you touch the Lord's anointed? I don't care how beaten down and dying he was. That's God's man. It's the same thing for you. When Satan comes at you and the temptations come, you've got to get angry a little bit. That righteous table turning in the temple indignation that says, how dare you come against God's man this way, God's woman this way. Jesus died on the cross for my sin, and you're going to try and, and sully that with your temptations? We're going to war, pal. This is not going to continue like this. doesn't matter how painful it is or embarrassing it is. You're going to struggle, but you don't lose in Christ Jesus. Amen. You struggle, but you win. Oh, it's a fight. It's a battle. Okay, but win the battle. Fight it to the end. Paul says, I'm running a race. I'm fighting a fight. 
And it's not going to be over till you're dead. But Paul came to the end of his life and says, bro, I fought the fight. I've finished my race. I want to come to the end. And I don't want to be lying on my deathbed, waiting to go home to glory, saying, Lord, I'm sorry. I wish I had done everything that you'd asked me to do. I want to be able to say, now is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, and I can't wait to get there. 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 6. Paul said, though we walk in the flesh, so there it is right there, we're in the flesh. We are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. They're not carnal. But they have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 6. I love that passage. Paul goes, yeah, you're in the flesh, but don't you know that your power is greater than the flesh? Your power is divine. That's the level of strength you have to overcome the flesh. And he, he gave us, I'm going to break this down, four different things in that verse that, that we overcome. And, you know, I, I'm going to use these as an illustrative example. All of these apply for all four. But let me just walk through them real quick. Number one, strongholds. What's that? That is a spiritual obstacle. That's when Satan's got a hold of you. He's got a beachhead in your mind and in your heart. And there's something you just can't get over because it is a spiritual issue. He says, you have power to overcome that. How? I think number one, through prayer. And not the kind of prayer that this is, Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for the food. Help us to have you know, traveling mercies and a hedge of protection in the end. No, get on your knees and, and fight in prayer. Labor in prayer, the Bible says. Travail in prayer. Pray like you believe it's going to have an effect. And know that this is a spiritual battle, so I'm going to fight spiritually. Because when the battle's in the spirit, you win every time. Satan wants to take that battle and put it in the realm of the flesh where you're weak. But in the spirit, your soul has been regenerated and is no longer corrupted. So he can't touch you any longer. So what will he'll do? He'll try to make you tired. He'll try to make you hungry. He'll try to get you to the place where you're fighting in the flesh. I can't pray I'm too tired. I can't pray I'm too hungry. I, I can't do this. I'm too busy. You see, I recognize that for what it is, Satan. And I'm going to get on my knees and attack in the spirit. Number two, we... we Tear down arguments and opinions. These are intellectual obstacles overcome through the word of God. Satan will try to convince you of things. He'll bring in these subtle things to undermine your confidence in the word of God. He'll try to bring in a, a false understanding of doctrine, a false interpretation of the scripture because he knows that then you're not going to walk in obedience and holiness because you're deceived. The, the antidote to that is the truth. Get into the word, learn sound doctrine. Well, I'm really not much of a student. I'm much more of a, of a worshiper and a prayer warrior. That, that's a dangerous combination. <laughs> if you've got a whole bunch of ignorance and a whole lot of zeal, the Bible says that's not a good thing. But you take that, that zeal and you apply some knowledge to it and some truth to it, and you'll be amazed. So don't let those intellectual obstacles stop you. Number three, it says every thought, taking every thought captive. Don't you love that picture? So you got your, your, all your thoughts bound up against the wall and you're walking by, all right, you all work for me now. You're captives. You belong to me. These are emotional obstacles. These are these, these thoughts and these opinions and these, these ideas that you have and your, your imagination that is not sanctified. How is that overcome? Well, one way is through worship. You come to the Lord and you let the Lord fill your heart. You crucify your desires by submitting yourself to the Lord. Well, you know, I'm really not much of a musician. Who cares? Amen. 
doesn't matter. Bible tells you that to walk in the spirit is to speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. I don't care if you don't like the tune. I don't like all these tunes we sing either. You think I do? Amen. That, that, that's different. You go over to you know, South Korea, they're not singing the same things we are, but they're serving the same Lord. So come in and say, I'm giving my life over to Jesus Christ. I'm going to worship. I'm going to put him on the throne. Let him sanctify my imagination. My passion is going to be directed towards Jesus. So that when these other thoughts and emotions come in, we'll be like, why would I want any of that? I've already got the Lord here. Number four, we overcome disobedience. These are obstacles of activity. These are things that we do. Sometimes it's just disobedient. You know what's right. You don't want to do it. There's not really any major deception here. You just can't stop sinning. I'll give you one way to start overcoming that is through fasting. That's something that we have lost in the church for the most part. You know, in the early church, the church used to fast every Wednesday and Friday. They'd skip breakfast, lunch, and snacks and have a dinner together twice a week because they knew we've got to get our bodies under control. What does fasting do? It trains you to tell yourself no. I just can't tell myself no. Th then fast. Focus on something that's, that's easy to think about and control. I'm not going to eat today. And that's how fasting usually goes, by the way, from sundown to sundown. You eat dinner one night, you skip meals and eat dinner the next night. Is that so hard? Oh, yes, it is. Because <laughs> then lunchtime rolls around. You, you skip lunch all the time, but now you've decided to fast and now you're desperately hungry. Or somebody brings in tacos to work or something like that happens. It's satanic. It's evil. So get thee behind me, Satan. I'm not eating these donuts today. Because you're teaching yourself to say no. And when you teach yourself to say no to your stomach, it's easier to say no to that, that itchy finger that wants to open up Instagram one more time. Which you know is, you know, one minute is going to turn into a hundred minutes. Or that, that trigger finger that wants to turn on the TV and watch four hours of the news in the afternoon. Because that's so good for you, isn't it? <laughs> Overcome through fasting. All of these, though, are about dying to yourself and learning to obey Christ. It is possible and it is expected. We struggle, but you ought to struggle to a conclusion, which is victory in Christ. If your life as a believer is only the struggle, you've got to reset. You've got to learn how to fight in the Holy Spirit. And if this is only religion for you, you're going to have a hard time with this. This has got to be spiritual for you. Matters of prayer, of listening to the Holy Spirit, of knowing, the, not just learning the doctrine of the word, but knowing the Lord who speaks through his word. It all sounds kind of mystical. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I'm not talking about like magic. I'm talking about you believe that the Holy Spirit of God dwells inside you and that he speaks to you and that he empowers you to do things you could never otherwise do. And that when you pray, he listens and he responds. That's what it means to fight in the spirit. I understand well the frustration, and I'm right there with you. But my goal today is not just to instruct you in, in the truths of these things, but to motivate you to take an active stance in the fight against sin. What's your posture towards your sin, towards your laziness, towards your hot temper, towards your lust? Are you cowering in fear? Are you just kind of ignoring it? Are you just hoping it'll go away if you don't look at it one more time? Or are you like gloves on, ready to go? I'm not talking about boxing. I'm talking about like UFC, MMA. You're going to break that thing down. Paul said, I, I wrestle with my sin, right? I beat my body into submission, he says in, in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, I fight against this stuff. I show up for war every day. I got my boots on when I wake up in the morning. And, and by the way, morning is when those temptations start. This is not in my notes, but just a reminder. You, you can't say, well, I'll wake up and take a shower and have my coffee and then I'll roll into work and then I'll have my devotions around 10. No, man, you've already lost at that point. I've already learned you can't trust any thought that comes to you first thing in the morning. Amen. 
Because you know what happens to me? I wake up first thing in the morning every Monday without fail. And the first thought I have is, how can you teach that stupid stuff every Sunday morning to those people? You really believe that God listens when you pray? You're telling people to trust in something that's not real. I've learned that that's not me. Those are not my thoughts. Those are whispers from the enemy. Amen. Little thoughts you get in the morning like, oh, he doesn't love me. That man, he's, he's, he's gone again. He didn't say goodbye. He, I knew he didn't care about me. Oh, that's not true. You don't think that. And neither does Jesus. That's the enemy. Get after it early. Wake up in the morning, get your boots on, get your gloves on, and say, we're going to war, Satan. I'm already ready for you. Verse 24 and 25, bringing it to a conclusion. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? You ever feel that way? But verse 25 says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Who will deliver me? Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. That's his concluding sentence, reminding us of that, of that dissonance that we're talking about. That's where walking in the flesh leads you. Wretched man that I am. I'm no good. I'm worthless. What is wrong with me? He says in verse 24. And that, by the way, is the goal of the law. To bring people to that place where they say, I can't keep this law, Lord. He goes, yep, you can't. Well, you got to do something. Good, I did. I sent my son Jesus to die for you. We all know how that feels when you just want the struggle to be over. God, I just don't want to deal with this anymore. That's how Satan gets you. He, he tries to convince you that if you stop fighting, it won't be so miserable. It's a lie. Don't fall for it. But 2 Corinthians 5.4 says, while we are still in this tent, compares your body to a tent. What, what, what is a tent? It's temporary. While we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened. What are we groaning for? Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. And that's the good news in Christ Jesus, our Lord, that we will one day be delivered from the flesh through Jesus Christ. How do you know? Because the Holy Spirit of God has filled us up. That's, that's the only real assurance you're given in, in the Bible. Did you know that? Paul goes, how do you know you're saved? Well, you've got the Holy Spirit. And you go, I don't know if I know if I have the Holy Spirit. Then you've got to come to the prayer meeting every once in a while. <laughs> He's regenerated your inner life. He's promised you resurrection. And chapter 8 is going to be all about walking in the Spirit. We're not waiting to become angels someday. We're not waiting to become ghosts when we die and we're just going to float around in heaven somewhere, we're not looking for reincarnation. We're looking forward to resurrection. When this body that you're in right now is going to be glorified, you're going to be reunited with this body and it's going to be glorified in Christ Jesus. And there will be no more temptations in that body to drag you down. Revelation 20 verse 6 says, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. When you are resurrected in Christ Jesus, your body will match your regenerated soul, and you will be fit to be a king or queen and a priest or priestess for the Lord Jesus. That's what's going to come in the end. Eternal life as God intended, apart from sin, with no more human condition to wrestle with. The human condition will be holiness. But until that day... We're justified by Christ. You've been written in the Lamb's book of life. You've been reckoned righteous. And you've got to reckon yourself righteous, we've talked about before. And God's given you the grace to struggle and even to fail and to get up and keep going and grow. 
And sanctification is the winnable fight against the flesh by God's Holy Spirit. Because you're so great? No, but because God's in you. And that's the dissonance that we face between the flesh and the spirit. But your mandate is to gain self-control over the flesh by the Holy Spirit. Your struggles ought to decrease in intensity as time goes on. As you become more obedient to God in Christ, you should see more and more dead bodies of sins that you've overcome behind you. Now, there will always be another one to overcome, but you'll be, you'll be better because you've already won a few of these. You'll be ready to go as you become more and more obedient to Christ. So some of you today need an encouragement. You are not your sin. God loves you anyway, and don't let the struggle get you down. And some of you need to be exhorted to get back into the fight. Don't let sin have its way with you. Don't just say, well, we're always going to struggle until Jesus comes back. Well, are you struggling or not? Don't give up. Get back in there. Win that fight because in Christ Jesus, you have the power to overcome. But for all of us, we should let the imminent return of Jesus Christ motivate us and give us hope. The flesh is a monster, but it can be beaten. And one day it's going to be purged, resurrected, and glorified. And I say, come quickly, Lord Jesus.